Praise the Lord. Amen. Please stand with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. There is an easy way of remembering this. The first five books, you just need to say this statement, God's everlasting love never dies. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers. That's why we are camping. And the book of Numbers, we come today, today we'll be in chapter 13 and 14. Do not worry, we have the Jamas today, so I have, we'll finish on time, mostly, hopefully. <laughs> the book of Numbers, we said, and we have been in this series, today's the third installment, and the book of Numbers is set around Mount Sinai, you know, on, and the wilderness that surround it. And it records the event that happened to the people of Israel on their journey from Egypt to the promised land, that is Canaan. And they had been redeemed by God, but they had not yet been settled. They were no longer in the land of slavery, but they were not yet in the promised land. They were in between. And so that's why we get the name of this series, The In-Between. They were people who had, not, who had been saved from Egypt, but not yet settled in the promised land. They were on their journey from pain to promise. They were on the journey towards the promised land, towards where God had promised them. And we say that this is the very same thing even for us Christians as believers, that we, spiritually speaking, that we are in a season of in-between, that we have been saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet we have not yet seen the promise of God that is the heaven, the glories of heaven, we haven't seen that yet. And we have been saved, yes, but with the help and with the guidance of our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are on our journey towards heaven. But also, even life presents itself with in-between moments. As you journey through this life, as you navigate through life, God can bring you in a season of in-between. You are not where you are, but you're not yet where you deserve or you want to be. So the question then becomes, how do we respond to God? How do we respond to each other? How do we respond in those moments? What is our attitude in those moments? And how we respond can affect us permanently. And so we need to have constant evaluation. And we say that Numbers is such a rich, rich book. It is not easy to read, but it is a rich book. And my intention in this series, and in the, uh, the three more sermons that remain in this series, is to help you learn from the children of Israel. They are such a very good tapestry that can help us learn as believers, but, you know, we can also learn from this book about the character of God and how God reveals himself. And these words which have been preserved here, the 36 chapters of the book of Numbers, they are very, very good for us. And God preserved these words for us. Actually, Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 15, from verse 4, Paul says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. 
so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. So I'm saying this, friends, because you might see God in the book of Numbers as a God who is angry. And you may see him, is this the God that I really follow? But I want to encourage you that these words are here, as Paul says, to encourage us so that we may be able to have that hope and to know the heart of God in his goodness, but also when he exercises his justice, that we be able to see him in that way. Friends, numbers is good for you. Numbers is good for our church. Numbers is equally good for your family. We might be discouraged when you look at the people of Israel and how they were responding to God. But I want you to see beyond that. See beyond their response and see the faithfulness of God. Even when this faithfulness of God is portrayed perhaps in non-palatable descriptions. So today is the third installment. But in the first, let me just recap what we learned in the first for the sake of our visitors. The first sermon we looked at Numbers chapter 1 and 2. And here we saw that God had made these slaves to, be, to increase in population. And also God had given them power. They had over 600,000 men who could fight. And also God had told them that his presence will be with them. During the day, his presence was like a cloud, and at night, it was like a pillar of fire to give them warmth, but also even to protect them from the wild animals. Also, we saw that the other P was protection, that God actually had protected these people, even from himself, by appointing and anointing the tribe of Levi. Last week, in the second sermon, we saw their departure now, now on their way to Canaan, to the promised land. You know, they were looking forward to the promised land with joy. We see their departure. But immediately after that, three days later, we see how they deviated from this plan of God by their grumbling and their griping and complaining. And then we saw how God disciplined them. We learned about the dangers of complaining and grumbling and say that God doesn't reward spiritual tantrums, if you may remember. That he hates complaining because complaining is a subtle belief or outright accusation that God's intentions aren't good and his ways are very unfair. We said again that there is a caveat. It doesn't mean that you cannot tell God the truth or the facts of what we are going through. We can easily say my marriage is hard. Cancer is hard. My children are indisciplined. I have lost my job. I'm struggling. You can tell God these facts because they are true. And in those moments, latch on to God and hope in him. But what I said about complaining, complaining is a critic of God. You see God who he is and you see his unfairness. And you see that indeed he is not just. So today, again, we come in chapter 12, uh, I mean chapter 13 and, uh, and 14. Last week we were talking about complaining. Today we'll see what we call unbelief. How the people of Israel didn't believe in the promises of God. 
And we are going to see it in three big ways. Especially for the guys who love, you know, structured way of running things. We'll see the choice that they made. We will see the cost of their unbelief. And then we'll see the cure for unbelief for us today. The choice, the cost, and the cure. If you want to read, because I've been trying to excite you guys to read this book of Numbers. If you want to have the bigger picture, you can divide the book of Numbers into three major sections. Number one is the order. God ordering these people, and that one you see from chapter 1 to chapter 10. Then we see the disorder from the people of Israel, and that is chapter 11 to 25. And then there is reordering. So God again reorders them. Again, another census is done from chapter 26 to 36, and even God promises them I mean, what, he, what he's going to do in the promised land. So order, disorder, and then reorder. That, if you have that picture in your mind, you'll be able to learn from this book, and you'll be able to enjoy it. Let me give you, before we go into chapter 13, let me give you a brief of chapter 12. Last week we saw the people complaining and God punished them and disciplined them. But now we are introduced again in the Numbers chapter 12 to a family dispute. Moses had two older siblings, Miriam and Aaron. And these guys, Miriam, was the first prophetess in the land of Israel. To the people of Israel. The first one actually in the Bible, so to speak. And Aaron was the first high priest in Israel. And then Moses was the first leader. So you can tell that this family is such a blessed family. They have influential people. They are such a blessed family. Even in modern times, you can say that this family is unique. It is blessed. It is very, very significant because they were significant in forming the nation. Of Israel. The prophet, the priest, and the king. That's what my wife was telling me that she's looking for a husband who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. You know. Yes, she she has learned to trust in the Lord. <laughs> in that way. But we see jealousy creeps creeps in into this family through the usual doors of in-laws, okay? So this is what the Bible says. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. Get? Cushite. Some versions will say Ethiopian wife. So they started complaining again. This is after they had seen what God had done to them, giving them quails. Now they start again talking ill of Moses' wife. They don't seem to like this Ethiopian girl who Moses had married. And this is the reality to most of you. Either you as a wife, you're not loved by your in-laws. You have that one sister. Or you're the one actually who doesn't love your sister-in-law. They had rebelled against God, but now this rebellion has followed Moses even to his family. Actually, the word, the name Miriam means rebellion or bitter. You get? And they were bitter in the land of slavery. It's a good name seen from the context of Egyptians. 
And Aaron means the strength. But at a time that Moses was needed energy and encouragement as he led these people, his family became the weak point and actually rebelled in his leadership. I wonder why Miriam would take so long to start complaining about this wife, the Ethiopian girl. But we see that in verse 2, that Moses' wife wasn't the issue. It says there, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. After rebelling against God, the rebellion against the proper authority established by God to his people comes in. And it widens now to Moses' family. And this is it. God had placed his mark on Moses. He had said that this is my guy to lead the, my people from Egypt to the promised land. It's the same even for us. When you have the mark of Christ, opposition will be your thing. You will face opposition when you have that mark and the seal of Christ, the mark of the cross. Moses, African wife, Ethiopia is just not far from here. They start complaining. They didn't think that he married the, 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 the right girl. They didn't like her. She was from a different nation, a different tribe. But then we see that actually this wife wasn't the issue. His marriage was only a surface issue that concealed a deeper problem that is of jealousy. And we see that as we have seen in verse 2. The issue wasn't Moses' wife. The issue was Moses' unique status in the presence of God. To his credit, Moses doesn't say a word. And his wife too. They don't say anything. And friends, there are some battles, especially within the family context. The battles with some in-laws that should just be left to God. No need actually to fight. For those in those situations, in between situations, seasons, with in-laws and all that, there are some battles, friends, that you just need to leave them to God. God heard their complaint. God sees all our situations. And Moses didn't say anything. But this comment rose to God and God took action. And out of this, when Moses kept quiet with the grumbling that was happening at home, Moses is credited as the most humble man on the face of the earth. You read that in verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses' humility is seen or put in context with how he responded to this grumbling at home, the fight with the in-laws. Some people have issues with this statement. Was Moses self-exalting himself? I don't think so. Because the Bible also tells us about his weaknesses. The Bible tells us that even he didn't go even to the promised land. It tells us how weak he was. And so if the Bible can tell us how weak he was, why is it that it cannot tell us how strong he was? What it means is that Moses didn't exhibit any personal ego in leadership or even at the family level. Anyway, God affirms his chosen leader. You can read that from verse 4. He affirms Moses as his rightful chosen leader. And as a punishment, 
he strikes, God strikes Miriam with leprosy. And leprosy here could be in many skin diseases, so-called leprosy. So this was a skin disease that turned her skin, or turned her skin into white. You know, she changed immediately. Miriam's complaint against the skin color of her sister-in-law, that she is a Kushite, an Ethiopian, and she was commenting about the color of her skin, God judges that and punishes Miriam with a skin disease that made her color white. Moses, in his humility, intercedes for his sister, and she was healed, but she had to stay out of the camp for seven days. And I can only imagine the increasing rumors, even to other people outside this family. Perhaps people are saying that he can't even lead his family. There must have been a public gossip about his family and who he was and how his, his family wasn't even supporting him. Public gossip and contempt. And for me, I really felt for Moses, our poor Moses. After that simmering tension, we get now into chapter 13, which is one of the most well-known passages or chapters in the book of Numbers. And this is the story of sending the spies, exploring the land that God was to give them. In chapter 13, they are right at the edge of Canaan. For 400 years, they have been looking and waiting for this moment. And generations after generations have been looking forward to the day that the Lord will deliver them and give them the promised inheritance. The joy must have been palpable. They were looking forward just near, so close. They must have been thinking about their real plots, their locations where they are going to be allocated. And it will have the divine title deed, not like Machakos <laughs> County. They will be good plots. They will be good allocation, beautiful land that the Lord was actually giving them. My people would say plot, oil, oil. You know. <laughs> and this was the promise of abundance and a place of rest. That after wandering, after being in the land of slavery, God was bringing them to a place of rest where they can be able to worship the Lord freely. The promise was from God. And they had ready hearts to go into this land and God was ready to give it to them. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am going, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So the promise was sure. Send them to the other side. I'm going to give them that land. And God asked these 12 men to be sent, not so that they can, God can confirm the land, but it's for them so that they may be able to build their faith that indeed God is good and he keeps to his promises. So God says, select 12 men. And this was what we would call the vision committee. You know, let them go. The spies are commissioned. And we see that, I mean, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert, that is verse 3, from the desert of Paran, all of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. And so we have the names there of the, of the 12 tribes. In verse 16, if you jump with me, in verse 16, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, or Nun, the name Joshua. So that's the point that you know, Joshua got a new name, Hoshea, which means he saved in past tense and Joshua that he 
is my salvation, that the process of salvation continues, present continuous tense, so to speak. When Moses sent this, them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on, on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And so this vision committee is sent and it's commissioned and they are being asked to go and develop a future strategy on how this land of Egypt, I mean of Canaan, will be occupied. And they are to bring back a detailed report that would be useful in creating a, or forming a military op operation so that they can be able to take this place that the Lord had promised them. Mind you, the Lord had already empowered them. There were many 600,000 men to fight. And all these facts would be helpful in drawing a plan for the forthcoming conquest, so to speak. So these guys, they go. So they went up in verse 21. They went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin, as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, you know, all those, the descendants of Anak lived. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes that the Israelites had cut there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So after 40 days, these guys, they are coming now back. So you can only imagine the joy that was there from a distance. They are seeing the 12 man coming back excited. And the people in the camp, they were looking forward to a good report. At least our men have come back. There is hope. People may have been excited about this, but when they arrived, they gave their report in two ways. The land and the inhabitants. This is what they said. They came back to Moses and Aaron, verse 26, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them their fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So that's correct up to that point. Verse 28, they deviate. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and all the parasites live in the hill country. You know, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So they confirmed that the land was good, flowing with milk and honey, a sign of great abundance. It was indeed spectacular land, but the inhabitants are powerful, the cities are fortified. They even saw the descendants of Anak. But Caleb dramatically interjects in verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. So Caleb, you know, designs where these people are going, and he says, no, 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 we can actually take the, take the land. It is good. But Caleb's voice in verse 32 is muzzled by the negative report of the other ten men. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. 
and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. So you wonder how did they come out of that land? All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. These are the descendants of Anak comes from the Nephilim. And Nephilim, it was, you know, the, the, the story of the giants. You know, they would say that, you know, the, 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 the demons or the angels, you know, came and, you know, uh, had intercourse with the ladies of the earth and they gave birth to very big people. They were just, sorry, Zajaba uh, there. <laughs> you know, then they say, we seemed like grasshopper in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. The size of the people erased the grandness of the promise of God. They even use what we used to learn in literature, a figure of speech called meiosis. You know, it's where you, know, it's where you, 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 you use a figure of speech to demonstrate intentional under, under what? Under statement. You know, they're saying that we were grasshoppers compared to them. We were like grasshoppers. It is used to belittle a person or even an event. The opposite of meiosis is hyperbole or exaggeration. So that's what they said. So in chapter 14, they spread this bad report. In chapter 14, we are now right in there. The, the, that night, all the people of the community raised their voice and wept aloud. All Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they say to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the effect of a bad and a negative report. And because of this report from the ten men, the people again are back to square one, where we were last week, complaining and grumbling. And to our surprise, while they were just on the edge, they refused to go in and to take over the land. They would rather choose another leader and go back to Egypt. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 106 and in Hebrew, chapter 3, that they, their unbelief started creeping in. This negative report brought three things. Number one, it brought them to a place where they had no faith in God's strength. They say that God can't do it. After traveling for over 500 kilometers, these guys gathering the proof about this land, they concluded that God wasn't able to give them this land. Only Joshua and Caleb had a different conclusion. They didn't think that the Lord who had separated the seas for them the Lord who has sustained them with manna, the Lord who had protected them and was with them even in the wilderness, and his presence assured to them they didn't believe that this God was able to take them to the promised land. They had no faith in God's power. And all the evidence of God decreased their faith but also increased their doubt and unbelief. They disguised their unbelief with lies and exaggerations. Friends, be careful of unbelief. You better be careful about it. Because it disguises itself with facts and practicality. 
and it is indeed coated with lies and ignore the reality of God's power, the reality of God's strength. They said they would rather go back to Egypt alone to a place of slavery and death than face the Canaanites with God. That's what they were saying. And the people there, they responded not just in a way that challenged the human leadership, but also the divine leadership of God. They said, you Moses and your God, hang on there. Let us go back to the land of Egypt. Let us choose a man who will also lead us there, back to Egypt. Friends, I don't know if you, in your situation, you believe in God's power and God's strength. Do you believe that God can be able to bear you when you are in need? Do you believe that God will take you to heaven, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that it is there? Or all the evidence that you have gathered in this wilderness, in this in-between, tells you that heaven doesn't exist. This story is preserved here to tell us there is a place. There is a place for us. God created you. God saved you, and he will carry you to the glories of heaven. And so I am here to encourage you, friends, brothers and sisters, do not lose faith. God will carry you, even when the matters or the facts on the ground are not saying the same thing. Have faith in God. Increase your faith in him. Stop complaining. Because complaining blinds us from seeing what God has done in the past. Unbelief blinds us to see what God will do in the future. Complaining makes us to forget, and belief makes us to lose that foresight, to see ahead, and to see beyond the, 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 the present situation. Apart from their unbelief leading them not to see God's strength, they also had no faith in God's sayings, or what God had said, or God's word. They didn't have faith in what God had said, God had promised them that this land will be theirs. But when they, or when fear crept in, they thought that God had actually lied to them. God's word wasn't enough for them. God's promise that this is the land that I'm going to give you, that word, brothers and sisters, wasn't enough for them. They had God's word, but they didn't believe it. The rebellion against God was directly connected to their fears of the inhabitants in Canaan. It is the rebellion that disbelieved what God had promised or his words. Friends, I don't know what you have believed more than God. Do you believe in the evidences that are around and you have disbelieved the word of God? Do you treasure this word of God? We mess up when we no longer, brothers and sisters, believe in the word of God. Apart from this bad report making them to lose faith in God's strength, God's words, they also had no faith in God's sustenance of the goodness of God. That's a bad thing. They said the harshest accusations against God that any man can be able to say. They launched a personal attack against God. They viewed God's gift of saving them from Egypt as a curse. They said that the land of promise and deliverance was the land of death. It wasn't what God had promised them. That he, God's kindness 
was violence to them. All that God was doing to them is to bring them to a place of death. Canaan was a grave. It wasn't the place of rest. And Israel blamed God by suggesting that God had tricked them by making them leave Egypt to this promised land only to kill them. And we all know that this wasn't true. We all know the goodness of God. We have seen the goodness of God to these people all through. And it's the same for us. How have we disbelieved that God is able to sustain and to keep us? Friends, sometimes we look into our situations in our life and think that God has ceased to say, to be who he says he is. Even they come around with some other ideas. They say it. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives, you know, you know, men, you know, our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. They use the excuse of their spouses and their children that this is the harm that God is going to bring to our people and out of that we are not going to believe in him. Friends, the mark of unbelief is judging God on who we think he is and not on how or on what or in the way that he says he is. We form our own God in our image and we give him the name God. But God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to see him for who he is and he is revealed in his word. In verse 6, quickly, then, um, in verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephne, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. I mean, this is a sign of mourning. And say to the entire Israel assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land and a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because he, we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb respond in faith. And faith is factoring the ability of God. If the Lord is pleased with us, he is going to give us his able and willing. Are there places and situations in our life where we haven't factored in the ability of God? We have seen that God is our peer. His strength and his might is equal to ours. Faith is factoring in the ability of God. And jo Joshua and Caleb, they stand even in opposition. And they stand firm in the promises of God. And when they say in verse 9, there, uh, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is God. And here, the metaphor here indicates that God was protecting the people of Canaan up to this point. But because, again, the scripture tells us what they were doing, God, you know, Joshua and Caleb, they say that God is going to remove that protection. They were equally his own. How did God respond to this? The consequences or the cost of unbelief. From their mounting frustrations, the anger of God rose. It says this, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. In verse 10, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs 
I have performed among them. I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a great nation, greater and stronger than they are. So God was willing at that moment to start again. But this is why we see the humility of Moses. Moses, even when he's promised something grand and big like this, I know some of us would have said, it's okay, God, even Miriam, my sister, and Aaron, Wananisumbuatuapabure, start with me, with my Kushite wife, you know, Ethiopian. You know, but Moses doesn't do that. Moses gets into a place of intercession. The sweet deal that Moses had been given by God, he declines it. But he declines it because of the fame of God's, God's name. Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. And that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring them, to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed. Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving in sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of the sin for the sin of the fathers to their third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Friends, this is the great intercession of Moses. Moses says, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your fame, for your own glory, as you have promised. And he was appealing to the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God. That is the intercession that we need always to, to intercede even on our families. For the fame of his name, for the glory of his name, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his faithfulness and trustworthiness. Verse 20, the Lord said, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and miraculous sign I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who has disobeyed me and tested me ten times. So they had tested God ten times actually. It's not just a few that we have read. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he, he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Friends, there is a reward for faithfulness. Caleb and Joshua, they are gifted and they are promised that they'll be able to see the promised land. And when we read later in the book of Joshua, we see actually God honoring that. But for the ones who said that, you know, we do not trust this God, in verse 26, the Bible says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long, oh sorry, not there, sorry, verse 25, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. They were just near the, the promised land, but God in his anger says, now turn back and go back to the Red Sea near Egypt. You know some words that we say, some grumbling that we bring before the Lord? God hears it. They said that we want to go back to Egypt. God says, okay, now turn and go back there. So near, but so far. And God was angry with them. Verse 28, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I had you say. 
They thought that they were deceiving God. They thought that they were deceiving themselves. God had all this. And God says, turn around and go back to Egypt. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I saw with my uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephne, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, you know, you remember the children that were saying that they would be taken either as plunder? As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. God says, these are my children as well. I'll take care of them. But for you, who has declined and deviated from my plan, you are going to struggle and to suffer in this way. But your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds. And verse 32 there, but you, your bodies will fall in the desert. And Moses had a, such a hard task. He conducted the longest funeral ceremony, so to speak. Every day, can imagine. This is a two million crowd. First, the 600,000 men had to die in the desert. So for those 40 years, you can only imagine the danger and the agony and the wailing that was there in that wilderness. All of them falling one by one. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For the 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days, you remember the 40 days? You explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know that and know what it is like to have me against you. You are against me. You will see my wrath. You get, and God has time, brothers and sisters. You don't. So for every day, it will be one year for the 40 days. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the man Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading the bad report about it. These men were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land was struck down and they died of a plague before the Lord. So they died immediately. Instant justice. Verse 39, when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up towards the high, the high hill country. We have sinned. Now they come back to their senses. They said, we'll go up and take the place that the Lord had promised. See the human heart. That's the human heart. They took lightly the directives of God and they were saying like, God isn't serious. God, Surely. Friends, God's mercies are new every morning. But a time will come when his judgment will come. He says, the Bible says he is a God of justice and righteousness. A time will come when we won't even have time even to repent. And they tried to repent, but Moses said to them in verse 41, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, and you will, not, and you will fall by the sword. They didn't hear, verse 44. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord, you remember the ark of the Lord, was with them and moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Homer. They were beaten, friends, thoroughly. Friends, take care that your unbelief doesn't lead you away from Christ. 
Finally, we have this encouragement from the book of Hebrews. You may remember. Let me just finish with it uh, quickly. In the book of Hebrews chapter 3. And Hebrews chapter 3 says these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and believing heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be, may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Friends, Hebrews chapter 3 calls us to examine our hearts and discern if really we are following Christ. It is possible to be around God's people. It is possible for you to be among people of faith. These people we have checked in numbers, their outward appearance concealed their inward belief. They didn't believe in God. Deep down, they had no faith. Their heart was covered with unbelief. I don't mean weak faith, friends. I don't mean small faith. I do not mean anxious faith. What I'm trying to say is they had no faith in God. Hebrews tells us to examine our hearts. Then in earnest, it says, encourage each other, rebuking each other, correcting each other, and challenging our motives. Then in, later in Hebrews chapter 12, it will say, let us endure. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus that we need to look beyond our present sufferings and situations and see the victorious king, the one who has promised us that I will be with you. That yes, you may meet many tribulations here, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. They didn't believe in the promises of God. They didn't believe in the promises that God had spoken to them through Moses. And sometimes even for us today, we do not take seriously the promises of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let us be cautious of unbelief. Let us examine our hearts. But let us also encourage each other. In earnestness, we encourage each other. But again, finally, let us endure. When we are in between, friends, we will be able to overcome it when we fix our eyes onto our Lord, our Jesus Christ, the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. Let us say a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that is true and everlasting. We have seen and we are encouraged that, Lord, you are never overwhelmed by giants that may come along our way. That you can advance your purpose when we trust you in all seasons. That you are worth believing and you can bring us or you can bring the good even when the facts are not making sense. I pray that, Lord, you may forgive us when we have dealt with facts that have led us to lose our faith in you. Increase our faith so that, Lord, we may be able to receive the gift of the promise that, Lord, when our days are done here, indeed, we have a life in you. I pray for brother or sister who is here, and they have been struggling with matters of belief. Encourage them today and remind them of your truths. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we do pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you.